Hola mi gente. The moment you've been waiting for is finally here. My brand new book, Financially Lit, is officially out. And I can't wait for you to get your copy. Inside this book, I'm bringing you culturally relevant and relatable personal finance advice that will allow you to finally feel seen, heard, and understood. Whether it's the guilt you feel from being the first person to make it while members of your family are still struggling, or the way that financial trauma manifests itself in negative and limiting beliefs around money, Financially Lit is here to guide you through it all. Just a few years ago, it was almost impossible to find personal finance books written for first-generation wealth-building Latinas. We have been forced to navigate the complicated world of money with a bunch of money books written by old white dudes who don't understand what it's like for us first-gen kids. But that stops right here, right now. Inside Financially Lit, you will learn how to set boundaries with your familia, with your dinero, create and pass on generational wealth, diversify and increase your income, protect yourself from financial abuse, navigate the complicated relationship between amor and dinero, invest like a white dude or better, and so much more. You can get your hard copy and audiobook version of Financially Lit at financiallylitbook.com and make sure to join our email list so you can find out when I'm stopping in a city near you for the Financially Lit book tour. See you soon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Yo Quiero Dinero, a personal finance podcast for the modern Latina. I'm your host, Janice Torres-Rodriguez, and I'm here to help you be poderosa with your dinero. I'm an engineer, a blogger, and an entrepreneur that built a $50,000 side hustle, and I'm obsessed with all things personal finance. On this show, we're going to talk about how to make dinero, how to keep your dinero, and how to make it grow. Are you ready? Vámonos. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Yo Quiero Dinero, the podcast. This is your host, Janice, and oh my God, I'm so freaking excited about this episode. Let me just tell you, I got so much great feedback on my last episode with Chrissy over at Casey Money Management on Instagram, and I just decided, you know what, I have to have guests, I have to have more guests on this show because there's just too many amazing Latinas doing ridiculous things, and this next lady that we're going to be talking to is no exception. So I'm going to be talking to Mrs. Miller, who is a blogger over at Miller's on Fire. The Millers are a couple in their 30s sharing their money optimization skills and their journey to reach FIRE. If you don't know what FIRE is, it stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. And it's basically a financial movement that has pretty much taken the personal finance scene by storm. And there's a lot of folks talking about working not just to the age of 65 to retire, but retiring way early. And that is basically what the FIRE movement involves. It's saving 50% or more of your income and accelerating your path to retirement so that you can shave off decades potentially off of your working years. Now, Mrs. Miller is a Latina and a native New Yorker. And she's a first-generation college student who is on the FIRE journey along with her husband. 
She blogs over at Millers on Fire and focuses on financial independence and early retirement. Millers on Fire, the blog, is full of money hacks, cost-cutting tips, money mistakes, and what the Millers have learned about budgets, saving, investing, and travel hacking. Mrs. Miller is a badass Latina who is taking the fire movement and making it work for her. And she's basically one of maybe a handful of people who I can identify with as a Latina that is actually even talking about fire. And that's why I had to speak to her about this concept and get her take on how we can all apply the concepts of fire to our own lives. So without further ado, Let's have this conversation with Mrs. Miller from Miller's on Fire. Are you one of 76% of Latinos that don't have a will? Okay, I get it. Thinking about estate planning is just not the most fun thing. But we have to make sure that if we're building wealth, that we're protecting it and making sure that our assets are passed down to our loved ones as easily and painlessly as possible. Now, traditional estate planning can be super expensive. I'm talking thousands of dollars. And the whole process can feel super overwhelming. Like, what documents do you need? How do I make sure my pets are taken care of? How do I make sure who is going to take care of my kids if something happens to me? These are all questions that you've been asking yourself. I'm here to offer you a solution. Gentrio is a company that helps you create, store, and share the important documents you need for official estate planning. This includes wills, power of attorneys, and more. On this show, we talk a lot about building generational wealth, and we have to make sure that we're protecting it. So that's why I want you to go to yoquierotineropodcast.com slash Gentrio and find out more today. Life is a journey. Gentrio is with you every step of the way. Find out more by heading to yoquierotineropodcast.com slash G-E-N-T-R-E-O and get started today. Mrs. Miller, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you because you are one of the very few Latinas that is passionate about a topic that I am obsessed with right now, and that's the fire movement. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. So just a little bit of background for my listeners. Um, I first discovered the Millers and Mrs. Miller specifically on a fire podcast it, I believe it's um, the one with Cody and Justin. What's the name of that one again? Uh, the Fi Show. Yes, The Fi <laughs> Show. And so I automatically was like drawn to you because A, you're Latina. B, you're like a super successful like financial guru. And I'm like, <laughs> I need to talk to this girl. So <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you about all this stuff related to fire, investing, and just like how you started your money journey. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know about financial guru. Uh, <laughs> I will say I'm a financial nerd. I've always liked numbers and spreadsheets, even before I really knew exactly what I was doing. So I'm definitely a money nerd for sure. Awesome. So you are a girl after my own heart. <laughs> I have to say I'm a money nerd too. So, all right, let's get into this discussion because I have so many questions for you. So the first question I have for you is what your relationship was like with money growing up and how your parents or your upbringing influenced your view of money? Yeah. So 
we didn't really have discussions about money um, as a family. I will say I overheard a lot of conversations about money and mainly about how much we didn't have or how we were lacking in certain things or how there was worry about paying the rent the next month or running out of groceries you know, until the next paycheck. So there wasn't really much conversation or at least any financial literacy or financial education about money. I remember my mom used to have a notebook and she would write out, you know, rent X amount, food X amount, you know, cable X amount, telephone X amount. So I remember, you know, I had some sense of, you know, you should know where your money should be going or you should at least have an idea, you know, write it out about what needed to be paid. But that mm-hmm. was the extent of, of, you know, my money, my financial education growing up. I grew up in a pretty low income um, household, actually. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the financial struggles that you saw and how that shaped your relationship with money? Yeah. So my parents, uh, my mom, and my dad both worked. And then I am one of five kids. So there was a time where there was too many kids to send to daycare. And my mom um, basically took a sabbatical. She left the workplace and um, she was a stay-at-home mom. She was a housewife. Um, My dad was the only person bringing in income. And my dad he was okay with money. And when I say that is like, he knew that he needed to put money, a a little bit of money aside to save, but there wasn't any education about wealth building. Um, But as, as kids got older and things got more expensive, I know that there was, you know, we lacked, um, we, we weren't able to get all the things that we wanted, right? We were yeah. able to have the things that we needed. So we always had a roof over our head. We had food on the table, even if sometimes, you know, for days at a time, it was just like white rice and like a fried egg, right? <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> um, so breakfast and dinner of champions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So like it wasn't, you know, I don't ever remember going to bed hungry. There was always something to eat, even though it may not have been what I wanted or, um, like a full meal, you know, I mean, rice will fill you up. So, (laughs) so, so sometimes it was, again, it was like that fried egg and that, you know, rice. And I don't know why, but there always seemed to be a box of cereal in the house. Mm -hmm. So sometimes even dinner might be just a bowl of cereal. Yeah. So, you know, my, it's interesting because I grew up in the Bronx and it's one of the poorest boroughs. Actually, it is the poorest borough in New York city. It wasn't any different than anybody else. I didn't feel like I stuck out that much. Mm-hmm. Um, there were definitely kids in my school who had the newest pair of Jordans like three or four times a year where I had a new pair of sneakers that lasted me the whole year. Um, but it wasn't, I never felt poor because when I think about it now, really everybody was in that same situation. Yeah, Everybody lived in some sort of subsidized housing and such. So uh, that definitely rings a bell for me. Uh, I think my, my upbringing was pretty similar in the sense that, you know, it was like you worked paycheck to paycheck, you know, that was the, the lifestyle and it was, there was just enough. Right. And I think for me, when I started to see like what the possibilities were, we're definitely like going to college and being exposed to like a whole different group of people. So 
Um, I'm curious to know if that was the same for you and kind of how did that experience, you know, change your perspective on maybe what was possible with when it comes to finances? So you don't realize what you don't have or what you're missing when everybody around you is in the same boat. Now, there was a time where my mom wanted to leave the city. She was just tired of New York City. And she decided that we would be moving to Florida. And not just, you know, like Miami or Orlando or Tampa, like a big city. Like we moved to the smallest town ever. Mm -hmm. And it was predominantly white. And so that's also very different from the Bronx and how I grew up. So I was around 16 years old starting... um, I was a junior in high school, and it wasn't until then that I realized how different I was from everybody around me. And it was at that point that I began to notice huge social economic differences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was seeing 16 year old kids who had cars that their parents bought for them. And I'm like, what? Like, and it yeah. wasn't like an old beater, you know, it was yeah. like the car of the year. I remember that there was this one girl who got a Mazda Miata, you know, little sports car for mm-hmm. Christmas. And I'm like, what type of Christmas <laughs> kiss are you guys getting? Yeah. And so it wasn't until that, It was at that point, I guess I was a little bit sheltered or like I said, everyone around me was in the same situation. So when I got plucked out of living in the Bronx, going to school in the Bronx, and then went to this small town was when I realized like, wow, things are really different. Mm -hmm. Um, It it was at that point, like I lived in the projects for the first time. Like we had never lived in the projects. We had, we did live in subsidized housing housing. Um, but for those people who know New York City, like there's something called Section 8 and those apartments could really be anywhere. And the government just subsidized that that living expense for you. Mm-hmm. So it was it was um, it was at that point where it was a little bit shocking um, to see like how the other side lived and this other um you know, how the differences were, you know, yeah. like there was this huge gap at that point. For sure. So can you tell me a little bit about your career trajectory and kind of how you, you know, started your relationship with personal finance once you started making money? Yeah. So my first job was uh, in New York City and I guess in other big cities, they have like uh, summer youth employment. So I think my first job was when I was like 14 years old working in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting that like... I think for that whole summer, we got like maybe $700 and that was huge. It was a lot of money for a 14 or 15 year old. And I remember, you know, going back to school shopping, you know, and that was what I did. I bought my own books and my own, you know, binders and notebooks and sneakers and coats and anything I needed for the school year. And I think I spent a lot of it at McDonald's, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But once I graduated high school, um, you know, I, I think back about what I was 16, 17 years old, you know, your junior, senior year of high school, people were, you know, doing things like SAT and ACT. And I didn't know any of that. I'm the first, you know, generation college graduate. And so I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing. And I sort of observed what other people were doing, sort of just like 
followed, you know, like listened to conversations about what, how they were planning the next few years. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought I would go to college, but I didn't really understand what it took to get there as far as, you know, filling out the financial aid forms and things like that. Yeah. And so that was sort of where my journey began. I ended up, um, going, I started, I remember, um, I had got my, one of my first jobs while in high school after doing like the summer gigs, um, was I worked at Burger King and I remember I saved up my money from Burger King and I paid for like a one night stay, um, to go to the University of Florida, like orientation week, like weekend, like <laughs> that was, you know, like my mom couldn't go because she had all these kids, but like I think I paid like sixty dollars <laughs> and you know some gas money, and I like went up by myself, and I remember, you know, like you had parents going with their kids, and it was like this whole event, and I was, you know, I was eighteen years old, seventeen years old, and. I was there all by myself and I remember being on this campus and I was like, Oh my God, I want to go to this school. Uh-huh. But it was a little bit hard. It was hard to leave my mom with the responsibility of, you know, five or four kids by herself. So what I ended up doing was going to a community college. FAFSA pretty much covered um, the financial aid and Pell Grants pretty much covered my education. Um, I started working full-time right out as soon as I graduated high school. Um, I worked for a small company and we didn't have 401ks or anything at that point. Uh, But really what it was, what I did was, was able to pay for a car. I needed a car to get to and from work and to and from school. I paid for any books and lab fees that were not covered by Pell Grant. And so it wasn't until I was a junior in college that I got a full, that I switched to a university. I graduated from the community college that I got a full-time job that actually offered um, a retirement plan that offered 401k. Wait a minute. So you're working full-time during college? Oh, yeah. I remember one year I had two part-time jobs. I was working a total of 50 hours a week, and I was taking 18 credit um, hours. (laughs) Girl, I'm exhausted for you. How did you do that? How did you manage that? I mean, you know, to be honest, things... You, you sacrifice some things, right? Like I wasn't a straight A student. Like I could have, I was mostly B's. And I know that that had to do with the lack of time, you know, the lack of time that I had, you know, especially living in this small town, it wasn't like things were five minutes away. I would leave work and it was a 45 minute drive to school. You know, I lived a half an hour away from where I worked. And so even, you know, when you add up all those times of like traveling and working and school, you know, it, my grades did suffer a little bit. Like I said, I wasn't able to get, I wasn't a 4.0 student. I was mm-hmm. mainly a 3.0. Um, but you just did what you had to do. I saw my my dad worked really hard. And at this point, I should say, my mom and my dad separated. So when we moved to Florida, my father stayed in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so my mom ended up having to go back to work because she was in Florida with us. Um, And so, 
you know, things got, it was really hard financially. It was, it was quite a struggle at that point. Yeah. So once you graduate, you start working, what do your spending and your debt habits look like at that point? I am really thankful and grateful that I was always afraid of having any debt. And so I went to the community. I went to the university and I did have to take actually, well, I did have to take out a student loan. Honestly, I only needed about half of what I took out. I ended up taking out $20,000 in student loan. In reality, I probably only needed to take out 10. And this was while working full time. So I paid as much of my education out of pocket as possible, but it's just expensive. Yep. And so, and I was living at home. I, I, you know, didn't move out of my home until I finished school. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I, um, you know, so I didn't have credit card debt. I did have a car note, um, but I owned the 1997 Dodge Neon, you know, so it wasn't like a brand new car. I think the car cost me like $7,000 or something like that. And mm-hmm. I think my payments were like 125 a month, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah. Um. So the only debt that I had was the car note. And then obviously, once I graduated from university, it was paying off my student loans. Mm-hmm. But also coming from a Latin household, and you know, I was working, like I helped my mom out. There were a lot of activities and things. I remember my sister was in ROTC. So there were fees associated with that. And so you try to help out as much as um, and also minimum wage at that point was like five and a quarter, five fifty, something, yeah. you know, so even though I was working full time, it wasn't a whole lot of money that I was bringing in. Are you the oldest? Of the five? Um, yeah, yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that. No, no, <laughs> yeah, I, I I'm the oldest the five of five. Just because, you know, based on how I feel like, you know, you felt sort of responsible for your siblings, because, you know, your parents are kind of, you know, breaking their backs to make things work. So yeah, I'm I'm the oldest of two. So I get that you feel that sense oh, of responsibility. Yeah. So you understand. Mm-hmm. Then. I get it. Girl. <laughs> I get it. I mean, still to this day, we're 35 and 30. And I still feel responsible for her. So you know, it's just one of those things that's never gonna change. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Back to the question. Um, how were your how was your spending habits though? So I didn't really have a whole lot to spend, to be honest with you. My spending did not change until I got a job. Um, so just a little I graduated from university. I got a job offer in New York City. I wanted to come back to the city, like living in Florida for those five years. I was like done and (laughs) over with. It was not my scene, especially because it was such a small town. So I got a job offer in New York City. And of course, I could not afford to live in New York City. So I moved in with my dad. Mm -hmm. And I lived in New York City for a couple years. And again, it was like, you know, you're working this grind. I was working full time and I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I wasn't bringing in the money to even afford to be able to live on my own. And so I got a job offer in in um, California and I was young and I was single and I was like, hey, <laughs> this is such a great opportunity. And so my spending habits sort of ballooned when I had a, a salary mm-hmm. increase when I was living with my dad, you know, I helped him pay some of the bills, which was great, like fair. 
Um, but I didn't have that much responsibility. So, and again, I wasn't making that much money, but you know, I spent it out hanging out with friends, going to restaurants, doing a little bit of shopping. Um, electronics were really coming into <laughs> to, to mm-hmm. season. And so, you know, like updated my laptop and bought a cell phone. And, you know, so it wasn't, I didn't really have a whole lot to spend. Once I got a salary increase that was more than doubled. So I went from making in New York City about 30000 a year. I got a salary bump making 70000 Girl. <laughs> yeah, which was fantastic. Yeah. It was it was great, but I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, I had I had no idea what to do with it, and this is why I'm really thankful that I didn't go into debt. But I definitely there was an opportunity cost lost okay. for sure because I put some money aside and I was able to live on my own. I paid for you know I had a car. I had um an apartment at this point, I was able to pay for my expenses. Everything else went on, I spent it on whatever else Mm -hmm. I wanted. I just didn't know how to accumulate wealth, how to build wealth and what that looked like. And that's where the gap is, I feel like for so many people, especially people, um, people of color. Um, If you know, when we talk about generational wealth and things like that, it's just, even when you get there, like my story is not a debt-free story. I didn't have tons of um, student loans. I didn't have tons of credit card debt. I'm really grateful and thankful for the huge salary bump, but I just spent money and wasted money, a lot of money on nothing well, really the message that most of us get is you know save like 10 percent of your money um 50 goes towards your essentials and then the rest of it goes towards you know whatever whatever fun you want and those ratios are so off if you really want to make any kind of moves when it comes to building generational wealth so i'm assuming right. that that is around the point where you became aware about the fire movement. And I'm just curious, like what that journey was like when it first started for you. I wish that was where I had (laughs) learned about the, um, but I spent a few years, I spent a few years just like splurging on things. I had, you know, what was funny is that in some ways I was frugal. I could never buy a $400 purse. I could never buy a hundred dollar pair of jeans. But what I did was that I bought $400 worth of cheap purses. (laughs) And instead of buying, you know, one good pair of jeans, I bought, you know, three or four $20 pair of jeans. Like (laughs) there was still like a frugal side of me that was like, Oh, I would never spend that much money. Um, and you know, like it was more, I didn't really think of it at that time, but when I reflect on it now, like the quantity was more important because I didn't have a lot growing Mm -hmm. up, you know? And so now that I could fill this closet and instead of just having two options of pair of shoes, I can have seven or, or 10. Um, I felt like I was buying the, the opportunity to have options. And so around 2010, I, you know, knew that I was making good money and I had an opportunity to be a homeowner. 
Um, and so I started looking at that and I said, you know, what would happen if I were to just buy a home? And I didn't really think of it. I knew that I could afford it. I was paying my rent at that point was $900 a month. And I knew some people had like, were, you know, had three bedrooms, two bath um, homes and were paying like $1,400 a month. And so I said, you know, I could do that. Like I could definitely slow down my spending and buy a home. And so I did. So I ended up buying a home at the end of 2010. I bought a three-bedroom, uh, two and a ba- two and a half bathroom house, and it was just me and my dog. <laughs> <laughs> like I bought because this huge place <laughs> because I yeah. can, because I could. I wish I. It wasn't like I thought might it might be a good investment, whatever that meant yeah. at the time. Like, um, but I was like, I think this is a good financial move. I mm-hmm. think. And so I lived in this house for a few months. And um, at that point, I uh, one of my friends asked whether or not I would be willing to rent out a room in my place. And so I did that. And then a couple months later, I acquired another roommate. So I had two roommates that helped me pay the mortgage. And what I did at that point was I put ha- one of my roommates rent, I put it into mm-hmm. savings. And the other um the other uh, roommate's rent, I spent it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes, of course. So I went on vacations. I ate out a lot. I, you know, I had the biggest closet in my life <laughs> and then just filled that up with clothes yep. and shoes. Um, and so, get you, man. Every time. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. I upgraded my car. I went. Um, I bought myself a 2008. I never bought a brand new car because I knew that was, you know, like the depreciation mm-hmm. was not good. Um, so I bought myself, you know, I upgraded a car to a 2008 Honda Civic. Um, I'm sorry, Honda Accord, which I still have today. Oh, that's all. Awesome. And yeah, so I, you know, I, I wish I could say that I learned, but 2010 came around 11, 12, and I was living mm-hmm. like this, you know, I was saving a little bit of money. My salary was increasing a bit. Um, and I was just spending, I was just spending a lot of money. Um, in 2015, I, I'm sorry, actually, um, in 2016, I came across sort of a clickbaity article that said, you know, 30-year-olds retire and travel the world. And I read the article and I sent it to my then boyfriend, now husband. I said, look at this. Like, do you think this is real? Like, could we mm-hmm. do this? And it kind of stayed like that. It stayed like that until I had a really bad day at work. <laughs> A few months later, and I read an article and it changed my life. Oh my gosh. Okay. So wait, so I want to go back. So, um, 2016, this is when you first find out about fire just on the internet. Yes. Now, um, what was your first like official deep dive into the subject? Like who, who initiated you? So I read that article, put it on the shelf. I had that bad day. It was a terrible week actually at work and it was on a Friday and I reread that article and the article linked to a blog um, 
called Go Curry Crackers, kind of a weird name mm-hmm. for a blog, but the co- uh, Go Curry Cracker blog. And I began to read as many of his posts as possible because I was incredibly skeptical. Mm-hmm. I said, they, they must have been making half a million dollars a year. How do you live on 50% of your income? I don't understand. Like I wanted to understand exactly what was going on. And I realized that there were two people making about 60 grand a piece. And of course they had a few uh, 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 pay increases along the way. But it seemed reasonable to me. At this point in 2016, I was close to making six figures. Um, and I, my husband and I were engaged and we were going to get married. So it was like, okay, well, now with the two of us, we'll be making six figures. We'll be making more than six figures. So how, you know, I wanted to understand the math. And so I spent the entire weekend reading blog posts after blog posts that led me into the world of podcasts. I began to digest podcasts that whole weekend. Um, I found um, the Mad mm-hmm. Scientist, his blog, which was fantastic. There was another one called the 1500 Days. And, you know, I was super excited about this. There was a part of me that also was upset. I, I couldn't believe i had no idea that this could be possible. No one ever told me and explained to me in such simple, simple terms how one could invest. And that would that weekend sort of changed my life. Girl, you are speaking to my heart because I feel like literally my <laughs> journey was the exact same where I'm just like, I hate this fucking job. I need to do something different. I cannot handle <laughs> this lifestyle. Like I'm not going to work for another 35, 40 years of my life. And then wake up one day and just drop dead because I gave all my best years to, you know, some freaking corporate schmuck. So I am totally with you on like being upset about finding out about fire because it's just like, dude, this is like so it makes so much sense. Like, why aren't more people talking about this? And I feel like this that's why this conversation we're having today is so important because, you know, even when you look at the vast spectrum of people that are discussing fire and that are kind of like the you know, the icons of the movement, they're like white men. Mm -hmm. They're just, you know, and it's just like, but this is for everybody. Like, so we need to tell. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, you know, like I I mentioned early on that I was always a little bit of a money nerd. Like I've had the same spreadsheet template that I used back in my college Mm -hmm. days. I kept track of my money. I did what the, you know, what those Forbes and, you know, money basic articles talk about, about saving 10 to 15% of your income. Like I was doing right. all of that <laughs> and I wasn't going into debt. So a lot of the the talk about money, I didn't feel really related mm-hmm. to me. I didn't have a debt story. So I was like, I am doing well. I have enough money to buy a lot of the things that I want. I'm not you know, accruing debt over it. I was actually a coupon clipper. Like (laughs) I used to, you know, do those, you know, especially because when I had the house, I had the storage space to store, you know, 80 rolls of toilet paper and 16 bottles of shampoo. Like, so (laughs) I was being as frugal as possible, but I was also not accumulating wealth. And there's, you know, so I had a good income and I just didn't know what to do Uh with it. And anytime I tried to understand what investing was, 
I didn't understand the those financial words that were being talked, you know, that were being spewed out at me. I didn't understand how to understand an annual financial report. I didn't understand all of these, you know, uh, terms. And so I just didn't do it. The closest thing that I understood was real estate. And so once I purchased my home, I said, well, if I ever decide to sell this house, I might be able to sell it for more than what I purchased it for. Like that just seemed basic. And so it was, you know, I, you know, and all those blogs that I just mentioned touched to the point that you just said, they were all white men (laughs) um, who were talking about this. Um, And so that was where sort of my blog came about. It was just, I got upset about not knowing what I didn't know. And then I'm like, no one I know invests in the stock market. No one I know um, has ever talked about this. Like people don't know you can do this. Um, A lot of the books, um, and I think it's incredibly important, but a lot of the books, the financial books, because I did read some of them talked about, you know, again, saving the 10 to 15%, making sure you keep a good credit score, don't get into debt. And I was doing all of that. So I thought right. I was good. By all accounts, you're following the prescribed, uh, you know, way to just make it in America and, you know, retire at mm-hmm. 65 with a nice little pension or 401k and be on your merry way. But Right, um, right. So how did you bring this up to your husband? And like, what was his initial reaction? Was he like, yeah, let's do it? Or he's like, what are you talking about? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, so I started on a Saturday, spent all day. I'm sorry, I started on a Friday night. I spent all day Saturday and pretty much all day Sunday. And Sunday night, I had all my spreadsheets in place. In- place. I had used all of these financial calculators and fire retire early calculators that were out there. And I said, honey, (laughs) remember that article that I sent to you while we were dating? And again, that was a year prior. I, I said, I think we could retire in 10 years or less. And, you know, of course, that's interesting, right? (laughs) Like, what do you mean? But there's a lot of skepticism. And I showed him and I said, look, we have my student loans. By this time, I had already paid off my car early. um, And but he had a car note. And so I said, if we can get rid of this debt. um, And at that point, I think it was about eight to $10,000. If we can pay off this debt, all of the money that we're using to pay the car note and the student loans, we can start putting that money into investments. And, you know, we can increase what we put contribute to our retirement plans at work. And that's investing, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and my husband, he had always, he knew about investing. Like he started investment clubs going with his dad when he was like 11 or 12 years old okay is he white but he's a white man correct uh, no really? actually uh <laughs> well, he is, he's half okay, right no. he's uh he's what what he called he calls himself german chocolate okay. uh <laughs> his mother was born in germany and his father's oh, wow. black i you know when yeah you're an investment club that is not a term that i ever heard growing up so kudos to him and his family 
seriously. <laughs> um, but one of the things, because I sort of managed the household fa- finances, you know, he never brought up the idea to me about investing more money into the stock market, yeah. right? Or what it could do if we reduce some of our expenses. And really, our living expenses, even at that point, were kind of low. What was really high was the discretionary spending. (laughs) And my husband actually isn't much of a, um, a spender. So when he lived on his own, you know, any extra money he had, he wouldn't buy, he would buy individual stocks and Mm -hmm. things like that. And so when we got married, he sort of did that on, on again at a low level. Um, so when I was able to show him, like, look, if we cut down on the discretionary spending, um, I think we could retire in 10 years. And he basically said, sign me up. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> like, it sounds good to me. I did. <laughs> Right, right. And I mean, we we ran the numbers over and over again. And there were definitely some things that we had to cut. But there was, again, some things that we just didn't do. Even at that point in 2016, we didn't have cable. Um, We just had an antenna that gave us all of the um, local channels. And we had uh, either Netflix or Hulu at Mm -hmm. the time. And we had an Amazon Prime account, which gives you access to so many TV shows and videos and things like that. Um, I was, you know, my husband in his wedding vows actually, you know, promised to help me coupon clip on Sunday. <laughs> That's um, amazing. So, so in some ways we were frugal with our living expenses, or I should say not frugal with our living expenses. We kept our living expenses low. Um, but we also splurged on because we had the excess cash and really didn't know what to do yeah. with it. Um, and so we splurged at that so point. So do you think because your living expenses were already kind of low like that, moving into the fire sort of mindset was easier than it would be for somebody that's just like, you know, I need to live in a penthouse in like on Fifth Avenue or something. Listen, I think you could be part of the fire movement and live in a okay. penthouse. <laughs> you know, some people don't, you know, some people think you have to live this miserly life. And I don't think that at all. You know, some people today would say that my husband and I live a miserly life and we don't, we live our best life. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but we cut out the fluff and the things that don't bring value and true enjoyment. And then we spend unapologetically on the things that we value the most. I love that. And I think, and I think that that's the way to do it. Um, and, don't get me wrong. There are people who are on this fire journey that just like hate their jobs. And I have to say, like, I always enjoyed my job. Um, what needed to change was where I was doing the work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so today, like I enjoy, I, I, we were living in California at the time and I moved back to the East coast and we're now living in New York city, which is a very high cost of living yeah. area. Um, and you know, so there are, things that are much more expensive here in New York city. And, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) So I have a question for you. Sure. How did you actually, you know, go about getting started and what is your actual fire goal? So originally we never, our fire number is 1.1 million. Um, what we do not include in there is our 
real estate investment. So as I mentioned, we moved from California to New York City and that home that we owned became a rental property. So you held on to it instead of selling it. Exactly. And it has appreciated greatly. So that home, I purchased it in 2010. So that was the very, not the very bottom of the market, but the, it was, the market was pretty low for real estate. A lot of people were losing their homes and short selling and foreclosing. And actually that was how I got this house. It was a short mm-hmm. sale. Um, and so I purchased that home in 2010 and here we are in 2020 and that home has appreciated probably by $200,000. Wow. So is your plan to hold on to it basically until, you know, you're ready to cash out or? Yeah, I sort of vacillate between whether or not I want to keep it forever or if I eventually want to sell it. Um, right now, uh, it cash flows. Um, which means basically the renters rent that we collect, it pays off the mortgage, all of the expenses, and we're able to keep a couple hundred dollars on the side for us, which is nice. And so what I've been doing with that money is putting it into a real estate invest, uh, I'm sorry, a real estate savings fund, because I would like to purchase another home, another rental home, I should say. Um, do you guys have long-term plans for leaving New York to accelerate fire or is that where you guys are going to stay? I think we, again, this is something we vacillate on. Um, so my dream idea of fire is to be able to do a little bit of contract work because like I said, I do find enjoyment in the work that I do. It's Mm -hmm. really fulfilling. But at the end of the day, I am going into my job, you know, eight hours, 10 hours a day. And so I would like to have a a little bit of flexibility of not taking on as many projects, um, but still doing some of the work. Um, So we talk about living in New York City part of the year. Um, Most of my family still lives in Florida. So living in Florida the other part of the year. And my husband is from California. So living in California Mm -hmm. another part of the year. Um, We've also talked, we have also talked about um, living uh, internationally. That is something that I would like to do. And with our apartment here in New York City, I've talked about this in the past, but um, the apartment that we live in now is actually a co-op. My grandmother purchased this co-op in the late 70s for about $5,000. (laughs) Yeah. And so uh, she owns it outright. And um, about a year ago, we moved in with Mm -hmm. my grandmother. Um, Her health was deteriorating quite a bit and she really couldn't live alone. So when we moved from California to New York City, we had our own apartment. We were paying about $2,500 a month in rent. And when my grandmother's health began to deteriorate, we as a family spoke about some of the options um, for sort of helping her. And one of the things that I suggested was my husband and I could move in because she has a two bedroom co-op. 
Um, and so that's what we did. And um, we took over the maintenance fees. And for those people who may not be familiar with what a co-op is, it's sort of like a condo. Once you own the co-op, you still have to pay real estate taxes and insurance. And um, there's something called maintenance fees that pays for so uh, for pay that pays for um, the security guards and the landscaping mm-hmm. and the maintenance and um, all of those things. It also includes your gas, electric and water. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just took over those payments and basically cut our living, our rent payment in half. So from $2,500 to about $1,300 a month. So I'm assuming you guys are banking that, that difference. Yeah. And so what we do is invest that money. Um, and that's also helped us accelerate our fire um, oh. goal for sure. And because we mm-hmm. have the co-op, if we ever decided to leave New York City, this is New York City. A lot of people want to live in New York City. We thought we could also turn this place into got a it. rental okay. property. So by coastal landlords. Got it. Okay. So question yeah. <laughs> for you, that you mentioned investing that additional money that you're getting now that you're not spending $2,500 a month on rent. So how do you guys, what's your investment strategy? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store shop phase to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dinero, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash dinero now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash dinero. Um, so the first thing that we do is try to reduce our taxable income for sure, because we, especially living in New York City and also living in California, these are very two high tax states. Um, and we are you know, we earn pretty well. So 
we try to reduce our income as much as possible. So both my husband and I contribute the maximum. And now in 2020, it's $19,500 into 401k plans. Um, he has a 401k. I have something called a 403b that's available for nonprofit mm-hmm. organizations. Uh, once we take care of that, we both max out our Roth IRAs, which in 2020 is $6,000 a piece. So we both mm-hmm. do that as well. In addition to that, we also do something called the health savings account, which is a high deductible health plan. Um, and for a family, um, you can contribute up to $7,000. And I love health savings accounts because they have all of these tax advantages. They're pre-taxed. Um, any growth in the fund is grows tax-free. And when you take out the money, um, either at retirement age or if you need to use it for health costs, it's also tax-free. So it has these triple tax advantages. And so we contribute to that and as well. as far as the actual, uh, um, what you guys are investing in, are you doing index funds? Are you doing ETFs, a mix? What's your strategy with that? Yeah, we mainly do index funds. Um, I'm sure people may have heard, especially if you've been following the FIRE community, the Vanguard's popular VTSAX. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, mainly most of our investments are in um, the total stock market index fund or an S&P 500 index fund. Um, we also have a REITs, which is a real estate um, type inv- mm-hmm. index fund. Um, so we also invest in that. And then my husband likes to do active investing. So after we take advantage of all of the taxable <laughs> um, buckets, all of the tax mm-hmm. advantage accounts, um, if we have any money left, he will invest individually and pick stocks, okay, so, so he's to speak. managing the brokerage account with the random stocks. Got it. Right, right, right. All right. So have you faced any setbacks along your journey? And if so, how did you manage them? Um, I don't think we've really had any setbacks. We've had to definitely pivot sometimes, right? Um, When we moved from California to New York City, our rent was much higher than our... um, than what our mortgage was in California. So, you know, we had to reduce maybe not maxing out our Roth, our Roth mm-hmm. IRAs completely, um, but we still contributed as much as we could. Um, so that was sort of a pivot that we did at that point. We also, um, I'm trying to think if there were any other ones. I think that was probably the mo- the one that we did where we had to mm-hmm. make some changes or sacrifices was doing that once our um our living costs uh increased okay. a little bit. And you're still bit. on a 10-year journey. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, actually it sort of shrunk down oh. a little bit. So um, in 2016, we pay- once we paid off our debt of the car note and the student loans, we got onto the FIRE journey right at the end of 2016, where it was like maxing out our 401ks and Roth IRAs. We were able to start that in 20s- at the end of 2016. So we calculated from 2017 
uh, to 2027 would be when we would reach our FI goal of 1.1 million. And we've been able to shave off a year and some change because the stock market has been incredibly mm-hmm. on fire the last couple of years. We don't anticipate that happening for, you know, uh, consistently forever. But for right now, if things continue the way they have been or continue even at, you know, returning six, seven percent a year, uh, we think we'll be able to retire by sometime in 2026. So, yeah, it's a good time to be in the market. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned a lot of high numbers. And one of the things that I don't want to do is for people to feel like they have to do it all. You do not have Mm -hmm. to do it all. But what you do need to do is do something. Um, If you can only contribute 10% into your 401k, girl, do that. (laughs) You know, like start somewhere. But next year or on your next raise, try to increase that by what your raise amount is. So if right now you're bringing home $2,500 a month and you get a raise that you can bring home $2,700 a month, I challenge you to try to keep living on that $2,500 a month and see what that would look like if you were able to invest the remaining 200. It's all about that lifestyle creep again. You know, we're so eager to, Mm -hmm. so eager to show off our success and accumulating wealth yes. and it's just like it doesn't mean anything if it's going out the door it's only making a difference for you if it's actually growing into something that's sustainable so one of the things that i love that you talk about is this concept of wealth guilt and for those that mm. don't know basically it's like feeling guilty about your success and i think A lot of us first generation Latinas and people of color in general that are quote unquote making it, there is a burden that is unseen, but it's definitely felt. So can you talk a little bit about wealth guilt, what that has meant for you and kind of how you've, you know, been kind to yourself and how you've managed that? Oh, yeah. Wealth guilt is such a real thing. Um, I did not have the words for it, but I could definitely describe what the feeling was, right? So I didn't label it as wealth guilt till recently. Like I sort of reflect back on it and I was like, yeah, I was feeling guilty about making it and about, um, you know, having this extra money that I, I didn't really have to worry about. I didn't have to worry about not having food in the refrigerator or worried about my light being cut off. Um, And so what happened was uh, I had, I mentioned that in 2000, or I don't think I mentioned the date, the year, but in 2008 was when I left New York City where I was making 30,000 and I began making $70,000. And so little by little, my salary increased. And I was okay. Like I was good. I I didn't feel guilty or wrong about that. But what was going to happen was right around the time where my salary was going to increase from making uh, 90,000 or somewhere in the 90s to bumping up into the six figure mark, where instead of feeling 
happy about it the way I had from moving from 70,000 to 75 and 75 to 78. Um, I felt a huge um, burden, maybe is the right word. Um, rather, what I didn't feel was joy and mm-hmm. excitement. I don't know what I should have really felt, but I just didn't feel excitement and joy. I was grateful for it, but I also felt very undeserving and as though it wasn't fair. Um, I look, I didn't have to look too far to see the um, discrepancies in, in, in what people were making. Um, You know, I looked at my friends, I looked at my own family, and I saw that the struggle was real. I knew that the struggle was always real, right? Like it wasn't brand new to me. But um, I just didn't think it was fair that there were so many hardworking people who were struggling to just keep the lights on. And I felt this incredible amount of guilt um, and sense of not deserving what I was about Mm -hmm. to be making. I didn't want to lose touch. And I didn't want other people to think that I had lost touch from where I had come from. Um, And so that's where it sort of came in. That's where that settled. I heard you talking about something that sounds like imposter syndrome, where we talk about like not feeling like we deserve the success that we have or that we're going to be found out. And like somebody's (laughs) going to realize I'm not qualified to make this amount of money. So Mm. how has, how have you dealt with that? Oh man. I don't know if I've dealt with it (laughs) as more as that. I I continue to deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Every, whether it's, um, you know, when I think, I, I will say, I do not take for granted anytime I look at my investment portfolio and see where we are. It just seems fake to me, right? Like <laughs> you don't have, you know, this money right in front of you in piles. So it's like somewhere in a in an account somewhere, somebody says you have this amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, like, it really is incredible. Um, I, you know, I sort of alluded this, to this before where some people think that people on the fire journey um, are living these miserable lives and who don't enjoy um, their, their life. And man, just, just today, someone posted, you know, if you won $99,000, what would you do with it? And I I'm like, see that too. Where I right. think I was investing Latina. On yes. Yes. <laughs> and I answered, I'm like, look, I would, save 95% of it, I would invest 95% (laughs) of it. And I would splurge and and I would splurge on 5%. And to be honest, Mm -hmm. I don't know what I would necessarily splurge on. um, Because I go on the vacations that I want to, and I do that as frugally as possible. Right? Um, I are budget girls at heart, like people don't realize that mm -hmm. I will never buy anything that's not on sale. Like, I don't care how much money I make. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, Just to sidetrack a little bit, um, I remember going, I had a a trip planned with some friends to Disneyland. And I remember I said, okay, I found a hotel that I'm going to use some of my credit card points for. So that basically eliminated any hotel 
spend, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, but it has a kitchen. So what we'll do is that once we land, we'll go to the supermarket and like buy things to bring to go to Disneyland, like buy uh, cold cuts and make sandwiches and bring fruits and pack that in. Mm-hmm. And they had no idea what I was talking about. Like, what? <laughs> what, is, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm not going to spend, you know, $20 on a cheeseburger and a drink. Like, that's just absurd. Facts. You know? <laughs> and so I, even at that point, like, I was making good money. I could have spent it if I wanted to, but why would I? <laughs> why would I just, like, waste my money in that way? Um, and so, you know, going back to the imposter syndrome, like, I think that was probably what also fed into, to feeling the wealth guilt. It felt like I, I didn't belong. Like someone was going to realize like this girl from the hood in the Bronx does not need to be making this amount of money and does not need Mm -hmm. to have this amount of savings and does not need to be investing. Like who does she think she is? Absolutely. Absolutely, girl. <laughs> and it is, and I think it's like this poverty mindset, right? Like, again, I was now separating myself or I was standing out from the people that I knew. I now started, I, didn't, I wasn't looking like everybody else in a way, right? Like mm-hmm. my friends and family that I knew were still in the struggle. They were still living paycheck to paycheck. They were accumulating credit card debt. And I didn't have those worries. And I didn't know where I fit in anymore if I did. Well, that's the thing, because it's very easy to feel that way when you don't have people around you that look like you Mm. that are accomplishing what you're accomplishing. So not only is it a combination of just the the poverty, you know, setting that we grew up in, but then it's just like, well, what role models do we have to look to to be like, oh. I understand the path to get to X, Y, and Z because this person who looks like me, who has my backstory, has done it, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like right now, Latinas are, well, not right now, but we have been having a moment, right? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, especially right now, people are talking about JLo and Shakira and like the successful Latina and the Latinos that can do it all. But, you know, other than singing and dancing and looking beautiful, like, who do you know that's a Latina that's like a Susie Orman? Right. Right. No, this is exactly this is exactly the point, right? Like yeah. this is why we need to begin to educate ourselves so that we could educate other people and be role models and be examples to what success looks like, yeah. what investing looks like, what, you know, high earning Latinas could do like we are we need to be the face and I love what you're doing with your podcast it's like having these conversations um with women at this point having these conversations with women about like this is this is possible your story may not be exactly like mine you may not be making six figures but at the end of the day the mindset should be the same that you can change the trajectory of what your financial legacy will look like and what you could be the one to change what generational legacy your family has. Absolutely. I think we are all part of the generation of Latinas that are 
going to break the imposter syndrome epidemic because if we become the norm, then there is no imposter. Mm. Amen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true. And like I said, you know, it's still something that I, I kind of, you know, it's not done and over with. Like there's still, I have my moments and I'm like, man, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> um, I feel you girl. Let me tell you a story real quick. Yeah. Because I had one of these moments the other day and it was a combination of like the imposter syndrome, like who the hell she thinks she is. And the wealth get like, who the hell does she think she is? Because it's the same message that they both send back to you, right? It's like, mm -hmm. who are you to have all this money and to be able to do these things? So my husband and I, we recently came back from Europe. We took a trip to Paris and London. We love to travel. Like, that's basically why I work. I don't have nice fancy clothes. I don't have, like, I don't like things. But I will spend, like, a ridiculous amount of money on travel. Mm -hmm. And that's just my thing, right? So we go to Paris and I'm like... I've been thinking about buying a Louis Vuitton bag for years. Mm -hmm. And every time I see the price, I'm just like, yo, this is ridiculous. Like, why? Why do people do this? But I get to Paris and I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to buy a Louis Vuitton, it's going to be in Paris. Yes. And, and when am I going to be here again? <laughs> so I did it. Yay. Well, wait, <laughs> uh -oh. because, you know, I'm in the store and I feel like I'm at the store. I'm having like an out of body experience because it's just like, I don't even know what, like what's happening. So I come back to my Airbnb and I put the bag on the floor and I'm just like, we're staring at each other for like 30 minutes. <laughs> and this like overwhelming wave of just like guilt mm. just washes over me because I'm looking at this bag knowing that it's not just a bag. Like, this represents, I don't know how many hours of work that my mother has to put in, mm -hmm. that my father has to put in, that, like, people around me would look at it and just be like, you paid, you paid how much for that bag? Like, what do you mean? And I had to literally, like, talk myself off of, like, the cliff because I was ready to be like, I, I can't, like, I can't do this. This is too much. This, this bag represents too much just struggle. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it's like crazy how we just feel like we don't deserve these things because of what we have come from. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm still like, I haven't even taken it out of the box yet because I'm like, I don't know if I can even tell my mom that I bought one because I would, she would look at me sideways. Girl, I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. You know what's interesting? You know, I really kind of go back because I feel like the fire movement gets this incredibly bad rap. And I did not purchase a luxury bag until after I be I came into the fire movement, right? Which sounds really? yeah, which <laughs> sounds crazy. I mentioned before I would never spend $50, $75, $100, $200 on a pair of jeans. I had a lot of, you know, like cheapy bags that I bought at Ross and Marshalls and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I left California. So we had a home that was over 2,000 square feet. I think it was like 2,300 square feet. And we moved into a 400 square foot apartment. I had two back-to-back -back garage sales. Um, where we made some money, but the rest of it, I didn't have time to even give it away fast enough. Like I told people, mm -hmm. come grab things that you need. Like it has to go. Everything else I loaded up 
in the back of a friend's pickup truck and I said, take it to Goodwill. Mm-hmm. And I remember when that pickup truck was leaving, I said, that is thousands of dollars being thrown away. Mm-hmm. And when I moved to New York City was when I sort of really understood that the the amount of things that you have, the quantity of the amount of things you have means nothing. It's not Absolutely. valuable at all because I am not a minimalist <laughs> at <laughs> all. But it was just like, oh, my God, like all of that money went kaput. Yeah. And then a couple years, about a year after living in New York City, I had always wanted... That's not true. I didn't always want a Louis Vuitton bag or Chanel purse. This didn't come in until afterwards because I could never spend that much money. But there was this one bag that I really, really wanted. And when I was here, I looked at the purses that I had. I had like three bags. And maybe for some people, it's like, oh, my God, girl, you got three bags. You just need one. Okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> Don't judge me. I had like three purses, but there was like this one type of bag that I really wanted. And I knew that Louis Vuitton had it. Uh-huh. And I bought it, girl. I Good bought it. <laughs> but I did the same thing. I didn't use it for months. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't use it for months because I said people are going to judge me that I spent ridiculous amounts of money on this. But then I said, you know what? I worked really, really hard. I invest my butt off. I save the money that I need to. I give not only to charitable organizations, but also to my family. Like the only one that needs to feel proud about having this purse. And the only person that could judge me is myself. And I know where this came from. And you know what? It's still like, I'm not going to wear this bag, you know, like (laughs) to certain areas or to certain (laughs) events. But I, when I use that bag, I feel so good. And I'm like, you know what? I have this Louis Vuitton bag on my shoulder and I have Walmart shoes on my feet. Like, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'm like, that's not important to me, but I like this. And so, you know, like I totally get it. Um, I I feel you when you say, you know, like if I... (laughs) My mom doesn't really, she's not into luxury, but if she knew how much I spent on this bag, <laughs> like I know, cause I, I took it to Florida one time and she's like, oh, give me that purse. I love it. And I'm like, she has no idea how much money I spent on this. I'm like, mommy, I'm sorry. Like, I'll give it to you one day. <laughs> yeah. I love you, but I ain't got it like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of family, like have, has your family ever said anything about your financial success? Cause I know I've dealt with that and I feel like sometimes it's mm. like, it's not meant to be like, like a negative thing, but sometimes I really feel like they're like, you have no real problems cause you don't struggle. And oh, it's just yeah. like, Oh God, you know, you, how do you even have that conversation? Oh man, family and money is so hard. It is so, so, so hard. I mean, there's just things that I know that I just have to do. So for example, for the longest time, we had a habit of, um, because I lived out of state, everybody lived in Florida and I was living in California. I was living in New York. So when I would come down for like a weekend or a few days, I would say, hey, let's go to Orlando. You know, we can just like spend some time. But that meant that I was going to be paying for that. And I knew that, Mm -hmm. you know, if I wanted that experience and I wanted them to have that experience too, it was just something that I was going to have to do. You know, I have 10 nieces and nephews right now and 
I stopped giving Christmas and birthday gifts in the traditional sense. What I do is that I opened up 529 accounts for every single one of them. And every time there's a birthday and every time there is a Christmas, I just deposit money into that account. And some of the older ones now, you know, 10, 11, 12, like I show them, I'll text message, you know, uh, their moms, my siblings, and I'll be like, oh, show them that their account went up by $5 or show them that it went up by $10. And they're like, wow, I'm rich, you know, <laughs> um, because I know that at least for now, the situation is that my my siblings won't be able to provide that for their kids. And so I want to be able to do that. Um, or, you know, I every year I bring two of my nieces up at a time and they spend the summer with me because, you know, if my sister has to work all summer, who's going to, you know, she has to pay for daycare and summer camps, which is really expensive. And so I'm like, you know what, bring them up. I'll stay with them. I'll pay for summer camp. And they spend time with me. So it's really, I try to do as much as I can do so that the next generation <laughs> will be able to experience some of those things and also to release some of the burden off of my siblings. That's amazing. Like, wow. I'm just, I am honestly like just stunned by what you are accomplishing for your family. And I think you know, this is why you're doing what you have to do, because you see the potential to generate like wealth that can change not only your family, your life, but your entire family's life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I still get those calls every now and then, you know, um, I, I'll give you an example. My husband and I, we were traveling from New Jersey to New York City and our tire blew out like we hit a pothole and didn't really think much of it. And we're driving down the freeway like 65 miles an hour. And all of a sudden the car like flops and we see a tire roll down and we hear this like incredible screech because our rim was hitting the asphalt. Oh, wow. It was like, it was really, really scary. But you know what we did? We're, there wasn't a moment where we we're like, oh my God, how are we going to pay for this? You know, we have an emergency fund. And, um, my husband, he's in the military and he was in his uniform. We were coming from base. And so like other military folks like stopped by and helped us as we try to put a, a spare on the car and all of this. And mm -hmm. thankfully we were one exit away from like a tire shop. And so, you know, we plopped down the credit card, put $180 on it you know, paid it off right away. And it was like, and we went off on our merry way. Like this took like a whole two hour process. It was like, you know, kind of a time suck, <laughs> but it wasn't like this worry that there was. Yeah. And I say that because just last summer, I got a phone call at two o'clock in the morning from one of my siblings where the same exact thing happened mm. and they didn't. And it was a huge financial stressor. Yeah. And I said, don't worry about it you know, tell me where you are and I will, you know, do everything that I can. Mm -hmm. And of course we would love for our families to be able to have emergency funds and all of this stuff. And, but it's just not there, you know, it just, it's not possible. And so I appreciate that I, or I understand that what is, is a, is expected of me. And some people might say, well, you don't need to do that. Like they need to figure it out. And maybe it's a Latin culture thing, but it's like, look, 
I am in a position to be able to help. And I think it would be selfish of me not to. Right. And I think where the line is usually drawn is like, if you are sacrificing your own financial security for mm -hmm. your family, then it would be, it would have to be something that you and your husband look at that. It's just like, is, does this make sense for us? Because right. the last thing we would want to do is you know, jeopardize your own situation. So oh. I, I understand what you're doing. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, there's definitely boundaries that need to be put in place. Like I wrote a blog post a few months ago about lending money to family because it is, it's a really tough situation. You know, um, you know, some people say I never lend money to family. Other people, you know, families break up because of a loan that went afoul. Uh -huh. Um, and so, you know, it's a very personal type of situation. And I think what you said is, is very true. They always say like, you have to put, if you're on an airplane, you put your own oxygen mask first before you could help a child or help somebody else. You make sure that you're able to take care of yourself first. Yeah. Um, and then you do have to set these boundaries because you don't want those judgments. And you know what? I say you don't want them, but it's going to happen of people saying, oh, you don't have to worry about this because you don't have kids, which my husband and I, we don't have kids at this point. Or say, oh, you don't have to worry about it because you're good. You don't have the money stresses. You don't understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so those judgments are going to come for sure. And they do. So speaking of children, do you guys have plans to become parents at some point? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason I ask, let me give you some backstory. So yeah. my husband and I, we have been married close to seven years. We don't have children. We don't plan on having children. A lot of it has to do probably with like our own upbringings and just issues we have with parenting in general. <laughs> but a lot of it also has to do with our financial goals. And we have weigh the pros and cons and for us like to live the life that we imagine children is not a part of that and I, mm -hmm, I say mm -hmm. I say that to everybody and I get so much you know there's so much judgment on women that don't want to have children because of e any reason but especially when it's like no I I like having money like that's mm -hmm. just what it is and I know I see the struggle of people with children around me all the time and it's just like something that I don't necessarily want to participate in but it's also because I feel this sense of duty to my own family, my parents specifically, that I know that they're not going to be in a place where they can retire. And so I am that source of retirement income when it comes to, you know, when they get to that point in their lives. So I had to weigh the pros and cons and to weigh the, the responsibilities that I have now that I know that I have versus adding to them by having children. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like I, I don't know if money so much factors in for me in that, um, because I know, like I wouldn't, for me, I, I am not so married to the idea of like, once we hit 1.1 million or once we hit 2027 or 2026, I'm leaving my job. And that's the end of that. Mm -hmm. um, to be honest, my husband, he's like, tell me the date and I'm quitting. Like, that's it. I, uh, <laughs> I am on the other hand, like I do see myself still bringing in some source of income because I just like to work. I enjoy the job that I have. And especially if I could make it into an ideal situation where I'm like doing contract work or not having to work 40, 50 hours a week, but work on a project, you know, a few hours a week. Um, I would be happy with that. Mm -hmm. So 
I feel like for me, what the biggest hesitation is just because I'm a little bit older. And so I just wonder, you know, when I, when I got on the fire journey, I will say that one of the things that I really liked the idea of was the possibility of being a stay at home mom. Mm -hmm. I, to be honest, don't think that I would do that, (laughs) but I love the (laughs) idea of having the option of being in a financial situation where I could be at a stay at home mom. You know, Mm -hmm. I talked about my growing up, my mom, you know, I was one of five. So there were, you know, I didn't have a parent assist me or, or accompany me when we went on a field trip. Or I remember when I had a play um, and I didn't have my parents there or, um, you know, like those type of situations just because they just couldn't do it. Right. Um, and so I do think about wanting to be able to provide that. But I don't know. I don't for me, money is not that much of a factor. Um, But one thing that you did touch on is that something I think, especially for um, people of color and Latinos particularly, is that we take into consideration our parents' financial situation as part of our FIRE goals. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why I don't consider my real estate uh, investment, the real estate property is because I kind of consider that as part of my parents' financial, um, help, so okay. to speak. Um, this is why I don't consider it part of my FI number. Our FI number is specifically our investments and not our real estate, because I do know that, that, that I will need to assist them with that. Um, yeah. And it's and it's just the truth, you know. It's just the fact. Is um, are you investing in things like a long term care insurance plan or things like that for your parents, or like what are you doing to to factor them in? Um, so the first thing is, for example, the the real estate property. Me and my dad have had conversations uh, in the past year, which have been great. Like I just found out he had $40,000 sitting in a safety deposit box. Who does that? Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know how long it took him to accumulate that amount of money. And it's just sitting in a safety deposit box. And so it was just like, okay, we need to get this money out of there because you're not even earning. It's not keeping up with inflation. Exactly. (laughs) It's just losing value. And so my dad, I don't worry as much about, um, but my mom, for example, you know, she did, she wasn't working for almost 15 years when she took the sabbatical to raise all of us. So Mm -hmm. um, I do worry about her financial state for sure. So this is why I say like, I think about selling the property at some point. And I also think about keeping it so that once it's paid off and that cash flows, I can assist my mom with her living expenses. I haven't looked into long-term care, but that is something that I definitely um, should. You know, I do think about those things. Um, My grandmother, for example, that this is something else that, you know, one of the things I really wanted to make sure that we as a family didn't lose the apartment, the co-op in New York city, because it is a place that is paid off. And I'm like, if mom needs to go somewhere, this is a perfect place to be. It's a two bedroom Mm -hmm. apartment. You know, she can be here and not have to worry about 
paying rent for the rest of her life, you know, like she could just be in this situation in a, in a place that's already paid off. Yeah. So what keeps you motivated to follow this road that is less traveled when it comes to the fire movement? Oh man. Um, Unlike most people, it's not the end date, right? It's not a specific date, but it's just the freedom of being able to be, um, it's the freedom to be able to choose what I do with my time and what I do with my life. Um, What keeps me motivated is looking at my 10 nieces and nephews and making sure that they are in a situation where they don't have to worry about whether going to a community college or university or having a full-time job and sacrificing their grades um, is an issue um, where they can just choose to do what is in their best interests, you know, um, mm-hmm. whatever interests them. Um, you know, thinking about passing down generational wealth and, like I said, changing a financial legacy for my family is what motivates me. I love that. So what advice do you have for someone that wants to start this process or just get control of their finances, but they have no idea where to start? There are so many great books, blogs, podcasts out there. Like I am a podcast junkie. Um, I don't even listen to music anymore. Like you go in my car or if I'm on the train, I am listening to a podcast if I have the headphones on. Um, There's so much great information out there. But the first place that I would start, if you have access to a employer-sponsored retirement plan, such as a thrift savings plan, if you're in the military or uh, work for the government or a 403B or a 401K, like look into investing in that because what some people do not understand is that any contributions you make to those retirement plans is investing. Right. Um, so take a look at that. Um, you know, if you are contributing some, I challenge you to try to increase that um, every six months or at the minimum every year. Um, try to to begin to um, increase those contributions. Um, so many people receive matching and that's free money that's left on the table. And basically what that means that if you contribute 3% and your employer offers a 3% matching and you're not contributing anything, (laughs) you're leaving 3% of money on the table. Yep. That is my, my advice to everybody. Like you should at least at the bare minimum be, uh, investing to the point of the match. Mm Mm-hmm. And every time you're getting that annual pay increase, don't even act like you got it. Like it just needs to go right to the 401k or whatever it is. Because the moment you start dabbling with that extra money, it's never going to go back to where it should have gone, which is where your investment account. So, yeah. And then, of course, like live below your means, like, you know, make more than you spend, spend less than you make. You know, if you are bringing home, um, you know, $2,500 a month, 
you do not need to spend $2,500 when you're thinking about finding a place to live or the car that you want to buy or how much you're going to put in your clothing budget. You do not need to spend every dollar that comes in. And of course, the danger comes in when you're making $2,500, but you're living like you're, you know, you're making $4,000. Um, This is where credit card debt and all sorts of types of debt come into play. So um, live on less than what you make and invest the rest. Like that is the the key because one of the things that I was doing was. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. I was living on less than what I made for sure, but I was missing the point of investing on the rest. Absolutely. And I think that's probably rule number one is like, don't spend Mm -hmm. everything that you make because you could be broke and making a million dollars a year. So it really doesn't matter if you don't have that handle on it. Oh, yeah. And we've seen this all the time, right? There's shows and reality TV based on this on people who, you know, had $25 million contracts and it's like gone forever. And it's like, how? Why? When? Like, (laughs) where did this happen? Uh, Or people who hit the lottery, right? Like they play the lottery and then a few years later, they have nothing to show for it. Uh Um, You know, there's... I think it has to do with giving up that immediate gratification for long-term goals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, really it's value-based spending, right? This is why I say like you could be on the fire journey and live in the penthouse and have, you know, a Tesla, like, like spend the money that on the things that you value most, but don't spend more than you make and make sure that you're investing a good amount. And if you're able to, you know, increase every year, by 1%. If you're saving 15% a year this year, try to do 16 next year and make it up to 20 and then make it up to 30 and make it up to 50%. I mean, it sounds really crazy, you know, but, you know, I don't want to disregard that sometimes it's not the cutting, right? It's not the cutting of expenses. Sometimes the earning more is what we need to focus on. And so it's really hard to live on 50% of your income if your income is $20,000 a year. You know, right. you're, you're, uh, it's, that's going to be extremely difficult. Um, but if you can focus on earning more money and then as you earn more money, making or living on less than what you make, you will be in a really good spot. Yep. I think it all comes down to being intentional mm-hmm. about where your money goes. And it's just... It's about prioritizing what is important to you. Absolutely. Like you said, if the penthouse is important, budget for that. 
Mm-hmm. If it's not, then don't do it because you feel like that's what you need to do to keep up with the Joneses. That's all it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. All right. So where can we find out more about you and follow your journey? Oh, thanks so much for again for this opportunity. Um, so I am most active on Instagram. Um, you can find me at Mrs. Miller on fire. And then I blog over at the Millers on blog. Awesome. Well, Mrs. Miller, I just want to say thank you again. This conversation was excellent. I think we covered so many topics that are so relevant to not only Latinas, but just women in general. And I'm so proud of you and everything that you're doing and the voice that you represent amongst our community where you're just opening people's eyes to the possibilities. And I think that's step one, right? It's like we have to make people aware that this is even an option so that they can start having those discussions with their friends, their family, Mm -hmm. and just realize that like the wealth of the world is not just for the rich elite white man. Yeah. We can all have it. (laughs) Yes, yes. No, absolutely. I think this is great. I mean, I again, I appreciate what you're doing and the platform that you're using, because we need more voices. A little while ago, I talked about how much I love podcasts. I don't have many Latina women talking about money in my podcast list. So Mm -hmm. I love what you're doing. Keep it up. And yes, let this be an encouragement to everybody out there. Like, Pick out the things that you can do. You may not be able to live off of 50% of your income at this point, but you might be able to live on a little bit less than where you are right now. Absolutely. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. I told you guys this was going to be an awesome conversation. Mrs. Miller, thanks again for joining us. This was a great conversation, and I hope that you got some value out of it. Now, if you want to find some more information out about the FIRE movement itself, head on over to YoQuieroDineroPodcast.com and check out our blog section. You can find all types of articles about different finance and investing topics, including the FIRE movement. And if you're loving this podcast, make sure to subscribe and even better, leave a review. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, that's the purple app on your phone, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. And please be sure to share this with your friends and family or anybody else that you think would get some value out of this discussion. Until next time, stay poderosa. On the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast and associated entities, all information provided is for general information purposes only and does not constitute accounting, legal tax, or other professional advice. Listeners should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this podcast and associated entities and disclaim all liability with respect to such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Usage of this podcast and associated content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.